It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great prayer. I love Norm. All right. Now, we're in the book of Ruth. Okay. Uh, that was my fault. We're in the book of Ruth. And, and Ruth, as we've been saying, is this amazing book. Just four little chapters that you could read in 15 minutes and get a really lovely feeling from and then move on. Or you could do what we're doing, which is to stop and smell the roses that are there. Or to use another analogy, to, we could, there's a treasure that is buried in Ruth because it's really almost more of a poem than it is a history. It's told in a historical way, but if you'll just read it, you know, if you'll just listen to the rhythms of it, it has a poetic, almost feminine, as we've been saying, where there's just some deep water underneath it. And if we will take the time, I'm mixing metaphors like crazy now, if we'll take the time and dig for the treasure that he has hidden there, we get these incredible revelations. And in order to do that today, I'm going to read the whole section that we're doing, and it's not short, but it's not terribly long, or it's not terribly long, but it's not short either. And, and I just want us to hear the whole flow of it, because then we're going to go back and do a little bit of this smelling the rose, unearthing the treasure, okay? So it starts off like this. Now, oh, just to bring you back up to speed, sorry, I'll come back to it. So for those of you who do not know where we are in the story of Ruth or the story of Ruth altogether, here's what it is. Naomi is married to a guy and has two sons. There's a famine in the land of Israel where they live and have land. They then go over to a foreign land, and the father dies, the two sons marry foreign girls, then the two sons die. So now it's just Naomi and the two foreigners, and hated foreigners. And then, but they've learned to love one another, and as the famine ends in Israel and Naomi is coming back, it lasts several years, as they're coming back, what happens is, is that she tells them, go back to your families where you have something, I'm going back to destituteness. I'm going back to a life of extreme difficulty, so you stay here. And one of the girls is convinced, ultimately. The other one, Ruth, does that very famous thing where she says, I'm going to go where you go. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. I am here to serve you. I'm going to help you. I'm not going to abandon you. Let God kill me if I abandon you. So she comes with, and then what they start doing is gleaning, because gleaning is the way that God gives for poor people to survive in that day and age. And then what it is, is as they're harvesting, the harvesters purposely leave some, and then the gleaners, the poor people will come, and they will pick that up, and that's what they'll live off of. But what's happened here is, is that Ruth just so happens, no coincidence, but you know, but she ends up, the way that God orchestrated it, she ends up in the field of what we're going to find out now, but a near relative, not that near, but near enough. And the bottom line is, is that he asks, who's that young girl? They say, oh, that's Ruth, the one, you know, Naomi. He goes, oh, I know about her. Everybody knows about her. She's amazing. So guys, leave more. Don't embarrass her. Don't do too much, but leave more so that she can pick it up. And she picks up a ton. And then what happens is, is that we get here. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you, because it's obvious that she was getting special help. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked, and she said, the man I work with today, his name is his name Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as your dead husband. Now she's introducing a concept here. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now, I've, we're, we're going to be doing Family Redeemer right before Christmas because that's a very good Christmas theme and it's out of a good book and it'll have the right feel. So we're not going to do Family Redeemer today except to note one part of Family Redemption that has to do with this, and that's this. 
if this is God's way of taking care of widows and also of another concern that he has, which is that people not be poor. So one of the things that God does is he gives the land to, to tribes, right? And then those lands stay in their possession. For example, they can sell them if they become destitute, but 50 years later, it reverts back to the original owners. So it's very important that there be an heir to inherit the land, and then everybody has a shot at it of not being poor. So this is what God is doing in order to do this. And there, you know, some women might say today, well, that's not really fair because it's not really for women, although it is. There's a place in Israel where some women inherit land. But the problem at that point in time in history of women inheriting land is pretty simple. And it is that though some women are stronger than men, particularly now in our, you know, where there's estrogen in the water and men seem to be getting skinnier and so on. But I'm not saying anything about hipsters or anything else, but okay. <laughs> Wow, did I just step in it there? Okay. But, but the bottom line is, is that men tend to be more strong. And the point is, they can protect the land from those who would come to take it, whether an, another Israelite or a foreigner. So they can do this in addition to which they can work the land better because they're just naturally stronger and it's an agricultural setting. So they can do the manual labor more easily. So they can keep the land from the marauders and they can also work the land and, and cause it to be more profitable for the family. So the, so the line of transition, the, the inheritance goes male. See that? So what's being said here is this guy is one of the guys who could redeem this land because it's just me, Naomi's saying. There is, you know, the daughter-in-law does not have a child that's in the line, so cannot inherit. But if the guy, if somebody, a near relative were to marry, what God does is he says, I want you to come, I want the nearest relative to come to marry that woman, may have more than one wife, but to marry that woman, have a kid with her, so that the inheritance could be preserved. And by the way, that ends up taking care of the widow. See, because she's now not just with the lamb, but also with the person that's married her. He has an obligation to take care of her. So this is a way that God has orchestrated, which is incredibly generous and graceful towards women in a society that is more male-centered for all the reasons that we just talked about. So that's what's going on here, and that's what God has done. And by the way, that's very unusual, the, the degree, the care for which God cares for women in the Bible is unusual to other religions. It's, they just don't have these kinds of safeguards as, a, as for the most part anywhere else. But in this case you do, and so she says he's one of our family redeemers. Okay? Then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young women right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe here. That just shows you the degree of danger that there is for a single young woman in this culture, even though it's a godly place, even though they try and do this. You know, people are people, right? And so the bottom line is, you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field, gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued to work with them through the wheat harvest in the early summer. So this is quite a while transpired now. And all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. Now chapter 3. One day Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative for your, uh, of yours. He's, talk, he's talking about this kinsman redeemer. He's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. 
Now do as I tell you, take a bath, put on perfume, dress in your nicest clothes, then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down there, and he'll tell you what to do. Now, I want to talk about modern mind. It's difficult for modern mind to read that story and not hear sex. Euphemism for sex. See? It's difficult to say she's not prostituting herself. It's difficult for us to think that she isn't dressing herself up and going to sleep with him and then he'll have to take care of her and then sugar daddy. See? That is categorically not what is taking place here. You will hear people preach that. And it's an abomination because it, it violates the story in grotesque ways. And we'll see that in one second. But I just want to really get that out of everybody's modern mind. Okay? It's a Beavis and Butthead world and people go to diff difficult places anymore, increasingly so. Okay? So having... I hope that reference was, anyway. <laughs> All right. He'll tell you what to do. Now, now you've got to love Ruth here. Okay, look what she says. I will do everything you say. Now, this is a young woman who has other options. She's a foreigner. She can even take care of Ruth. But she doesn't have to do this. She doesn't have to go with the old man. She doesn't have to do all of this stuff that she's saying. She doesn't have to give up the whole of her life. I mean, you know, the things that would be attractive to her own eyes. She does not have to do that. And yet she does. And there's just something about the character of Ruth that we see over and over and over again, which ought to just be striking. If, if you just have to put yourself in her shoes and say, would you be able to maintain that level of integrity, that level of character, that level of commitment over the long haul? It's a tough thing, okay? So yes, I will do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night, followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. Boaz had finished eating and drinking, was in good spirits. He laid down at the far end of the pile of grain, went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, laid down. Around midnight, he woke up, turned over, surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Now, right there, you can see that's not, this is not sexual. He goes to sleep, and there's a woman laying at his feet, and he's like, what's this? And, and so, who are you? He said, I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Now, I just want to stop here for a second. She, she's already a servant in essence, right? She's already been told to be with the servant girls. Now, he's not doing what he does with the servant girls because they get pay. She's still doing something, and we don't know if he's paying her or if she's still gleaning or whatever, but, but she's essentially in that camp as far as the other women go, right? So when she comes and puts herself under his blanket like this, this isn't a suggestion of sexual. She brings it up right here. This is a suggestion of, I am a widow of an Israelite, and the law is that you, the next nearest one is to have a child so that this thing can be preserved, and even though I'm a foreigner, this still applies, and so, you see it? So she's asking for something much more than just, can I keep working in your fields, and would you like me, and sugar daddy me, or whatever. See, she's asking for something much more substantive than something superficial and stupid like that. She's not selling herself. So she's, in fact, quite the opposite, in fact. And as he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz explained. You are showing even more kindness, family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. See, everybody knows your character. You are a good person. 
you're in a tough place. I'm going to cover you. I am going to take the blanket. I'm going to metaphorically put it over you, and I'm going to cover you as you are asking me to do. See what I mean? Now, that's a beautiful story, isn't it? Now, I just want you to see something here. You see where I put kindness in brackets and family loyalty? This is NLT. NLT is what we call a paraphrase, which means they're trying to get you to hear what a person of that day and age would have heard when they read that verse. And a lot of times, the problem with a paraphrase is there's a meaning that's in that word for translation that can cut two or more ways. We have it all the time in English, right? Double entendres or, or just puns or whatever. They, they, they mean more than one thing, okay? But in order to get out the meaning, the translators have to pick one of those two meanings. So in this instance, the NLT picked family loyalty. And that's the one that's the more hidden one. The other one we'll get to in a second, and it's the more obvious one. This is family loyalty. Now, what does that mean? You're showing even more family loyalty. Well, it's this kinsman redeemer thing. I want you to see something about eventually Boaz will, in fact, marry her, and they will have a child and so on. I want you to see how the townspeople perceive this act, okay? So Boaz took Ruth into his home. She became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Then the woman of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord, said to Ruth. Ruth's the mom. Praise the Lord, you widow. See? No. Look who they're, look who they're saying God has been merciful to. Praise the Lord. They said to Naomi, praise the Lord has provided a redeemer for your family. May this child become famous in Israel. Indeed he did. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby, cuddled him to her breast, which could mean, doesn't necessarily, but could mean wet nursed him. That's how close they were. That's how much this is Naomi's child. Naomi's hope. Naomi's future Naomi's inheritance not in the land but in the in the fuller sense of that word see it the neighbor women said now at last Naomi has a son again that's the way the book ends you see where the emphasis is it's on that syllable it's, it's going after this idea that what's really happened here is that Ruth by her sacrificial actions has provided with even her own body for Naomi. See that? That's the, that's the overarching. So he's saying, this is an extraordinary act you do, young gal, as you come under me, an old man, in order to do this better thing. You could have chosen something that, you could have chosen some rich man, and he would have taken care of Naomi and blah, 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 but you've done the better thing altogether. See that? So there's the family loyalty sense of that word that comes out and thank you for the NLT for putting that in there but it is not the only sense that that word could be translated to because the word is actually kindness for this kindness that you've done now I want you to think about this one for a second here's one of the things that we actually haven't talked about much yet in Ruth we've talked about it several weeks already probably more weeks than some people thought the book deserved but nonetheless I hope it's been a blessing but the one thing we haven't really been talking about too much is the fact that this is a love story. 
It is a love story. This is a story told by David and his family about his ancestors, and he's picked out two that are remarkable, but it is a story of love. In fact, watch, at the very beginning of the story, Ruth 1.8, see, she said to the two daughters-in-law, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. She's acknowledging that the reason why they're staying with her is not out of some sense of obligation or not out of some hope that maybe she's got some land back there and they can make out with that. What she's saying is, you love me. That's the, that's the thing. And you see him crying and tearing up and all this kind of stuff. It's a love story. And by the way, the book ends on a note of love because as we just looked at, your daughter-in-law who loves you. Love. This is a love story. But there's a funny thing about this particular love story. It never says that Naomi and Ruth loved each other, or that, uh, excuse me, that um, Boaz and Ruth loved each other. It never says that. Very clearly, it can be implied, and we're going to do that right now. We're going to see why you can do that. But I just want you to understand, it doesn't actually say that they actually loved one another. But I want you to think about this just a little bit. Um... Uh, here, the, the message in picking up this other meaning says, God bless you, my dear daughter. What a splendid expression of love. That's the kindness word. He translates it love. Now, is it family loyalty love for Naomi? Or is it love for Boaz? See? Now, and when you could have had your pick of any of the young men around. Now, I want to tell you why I think When, when, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I'm a person, I'm a human being, I think that includes all of us, okay, I hope. If not, let me know after the service, we'll talk. <laughs> but, you know, you, you know, as people, as human beings, we are made to actually be attracted to attractive people. And I mean, I'm talking about that, I mean the outside, the exterior, beautiful or handsome. We're made to be drawn to people that have certain high cheekbones and so on and so on. And that can be culturally different and so on. But the bottom line is every culture has its definition of beauty. And when people see it, they are moved towards it. That's the way that we are as human beings. It's not to, well, that's the way that we are. But there's this other thing that's deeper than that. And the deeper thing is, I don't know about you, but... The way that I am, if I get to know somebody, like even like, say, a month, if I work with them for a month, and I've actually worked with them and seen them interact and seen their strengths and their weaknesses and see where, you know, who they really are, I actually start looking at them, and I don't see them the same way anymore. Isn't that right? You just don't see them the same way. In fact, it's to this point. If they might be what you might call homely, right? Boy, when you see their character and their nature, when you see who they are, don't they just become incredibly attractive to you? Aren't you drawn to them in the same way that it would have been a superficial external? You're drawn to them, aren't you? And interestingly, conversely, if you meet somebody who's really attractive, but they're kind of a putz, you know, they're just a jerk or they've got bad morals or they're just a horrible person or whatever, when you see them, all of a sudden that angularity in the face that was supposed to define beauty becomes more like, you know, a witch's angles. Doesn't it? I mean, I, I really have this problem to the point that somebody says, well, what do they look like? 
I, I, I'm pretty sure if you put me with a police sketch artist, I couldn't accurately draw anybody that I know well. I'm, re I'm really being quite serious about this. I, I think there's probably part of my brain that's partly broken, and you probably know that all too well if you've been here for a while. But, but I mean, I really don't see that anymore. When I see somebody, I see that thing that's in them, and, that, and I'm just... Like, if, if the police bought it, you know, here's who they are. Man, they're just really nice, and they're really gracious, and they're really, how do I draw that, Kurt? Well, I don't know, but they're really nice, and they're just loving, and they, they do all these things, and you see what I mean? That's the way I think about people, and that's the way that I see them, and I don't think I'm alone. I think most of us actually do have that happen to us. Now, I want to say something. There's another thing about this love story that's very interesting. It never says that either Ruth or Boaz is handsome or beautiful. We picture them that way, don't we? Because we hear a story of a young woman and she's got to be what? Pretty. Right? But it never says that she is. In fact, it, it, it says something all different than that. Because watch what he says. Is, is this the, you guys know those commercials, the most interesting man in the world? Uh, Adam Obonsky was the first guy that introduced me to that. And I, I think those commercials are awesome. I think they're so funny. And, but, you know, this is an older guy who's quite handsome and quite wealthy and quite interesting. And so all the young girls are attracted to that. And, indeed, we know in the world that that's true, right? You get somebody who can protect you and cover you, and he's handsome. And young women will, in fact, fall in love with him. Not just sugar daddy. Actually fall in love with him. Okay? Now... The bottom line is, though, look at the reaction that Boaz has to Ruth's kindness. You're showing even more kindness now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man. Can I read between the lines and say what he's saying? I'm not particularly handsome. Why are you choosing me? I'm wealthy, but I'm not. There's other richer men than me. Why are you... See what I'm saying? That's not actually what he's saying at all, but I just want you to hear this for a second. See it? I want you to hear that his reaction is not the most interesting man in the world. Well, of course, so you like me because I'm handsome and I'm rich and I'm, <laughs> you see? It doesn't have that in it, does it? It has something quite different than that. It's you're doing a thing of kindness, not love, even though it is love, but it's kind that you would have chosen me. Do you see what an interesting word all of a sudden this becomes? See, and, all, and that triggers us to something, doesn't it? In fact, do think about it. See, the Lord has the same problem I do because, and that's, I'm glad that I've got the same problem he does. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And what Boaz has said about Ruth is, is that everybody in town knows that you're a virtuous woman. And though I saw you before and you were a girl who was taking care of a relative and I admired you for that as I've watched you work, as I've seen you do the things that you've done, as you've done these kinds of things, I, I want to ask the question, has Boaz fallen in love with Ruth? And if he has, is he hoping that she will choose him? I don't mean sexual love. See where if we go sex with it, it cheapens the whole thing and takes the preciousness of the meaning out of it? What I'm talking about here is, is, that, is that Boaz, as a good man, has seen this good woman. 
and he has fallen for her. Not because of her looks, not because of superficial, not because of external. He's fallen for her because she's of outstanding character. And he's hoping. Now, as I say this kind of thing, let me just say, um, I want to use an analogy. I want to use it, right? I want to show you something here that a lot of people in the world are attracted to, okay? This isn't a church, so you're not going to be as attracted as the world normally is. But bottom line, this is Las Vegas, Okay, glitzy, glamoury, bright lights, neon town, you know what I mean, all lit up, and all of these things, and boy, isn't it fun, and you can laugh with people and eat dinner and go gamble, and, and then you get to see all these bright lights, and you get to see all these shows, and you get to see all these water shows, and, and all of these things, and oh, it's so attractive to us in, on one level, isn't it? Fleshly, again, we're in a church, so maybe we're saying no, but just be fleshly for a second, okay? A pastor will never tell you to do that, so this is your one chance, okay? Uh, yeah, time's up. I want you to just, I, actually, I had to edit this video because there were some pretty fleshly things in there that I didn't want to show in church, okay? But when you see something like that, that's pretty. That is, that is attractive to the eye, right? That is that person when you first meet them and they've got the right features, this is attractive, and, and there is something about it that is beautiful, and it's done well, and, and the whole nine yards, and everything else. And so there is a level of attraction to it on a fleshly level. But you know what Las Vegas really is? It, it's a town that looks good at night, because in the daytime, it's a desert. See? An arid, vacuous, life-sopping place. It's a desert. Okay, and it does not stand the cruel light of day. Okay, it's dust. You go down to that row right there, and you go walking around in there, and there's dirt everywhere. It's just dirty. They do their best to clean it up, but it's a desert. <laughs> so there's dirt. <laughs> it blows in. It's just, it just, you see what I mean? Now contrast that glitzy, glamorous thing with what God intended for us. A garden. A place of richness. Now, is it glitzy and glamoury? In a very real way, it's not as attractive in some fashion as is the glitz and the glamour that really strikes the senses, even overpowering them. This is, a, this is a beauty that invites you into it. This is a beauty that you have to stop and smell the rose to find. This is a beauty that you have to work and unearth, and there is life in it. The other one saps life from you. It takes from you. It steals from you. It has the hangover and the emptiness of the day after. This is one that goes on forever. This is life. And if you will choose this more subtle but more substantive life, then you will have chosen the better thing. It is a, it is a choice of character. Do you go after the glitz and the glamour? Or do you go after the more substantive, long-lasting, life-giving beauty? Which do you do, see? Now, that's the decision that Ruth made. Isn't it? She could have done what her eye and her flesh desired. Instead, she looked at the deeper things. And though there was arguably not the attraction there on the physical level, she saw 
a good man. A very good man. If, if Boaz had been a jerk and Naomi said, come under his cover, do you think that Ruth would have said so willingly, yes? I don't think Ruth is stupid. I think that when Naomi tells her to come under this man's cover, she says, I want to. This is a good man. This is a good human being, a good person. And I'm attracted to that. I have love for that. Do you see it? I think that this is the love story that is unfolding before us. And frankly, I think that that's just right there is a phenomenal insight about the book and, and, you know, and everything else. But it hasn't got us to the place to where we understand about seeing God face to face. So we need to just do one more thing before we wrap up here. And, and it goes like this. I want you to think now for a moment that this is an allegory. Now, it's not, a, it's not an allegory as in a parable, as in a fake story that is exhibiting some characteristics. This is a real historical story of two people who are doing what? Are acting the way that God intended people to act. And when they do, who do they image? God. See? He made them to image him. And when they act the way that Ruth and Boaz do, they image God. And in that regard, we can look at this story not just a story about Ruth and Boaz, but as an allegory between God and us. And if so, let me ask you, who's God in the story? Who is it? Boaz and Ruth, so pick one. <laughs> it's Boaz. See, Boaz stands in as God. This is what's being revealed about him. And if that's true, then I want you to just follow for a second here. Look at how God has chosen to reveal himself. Here's who God is. Revelation, lightning, thunder, glory. You can't look at him, but it'll be you convicted and die. You, you, look who God is. God is spectacular. God is beautiful in ways that Revelation can't even find the words to communicate how beautiful he is. But you want to know something really interesting about how God comes to us in Christ? Isaiah tells us that there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. You see, he came in a way that he was saying, I want you to stop and smell the rose. I don't want to attract you because I'm beautiful, because that is just the flesh. That is something that is superficial. That is something that will not last. That is not substantive. That is not life-giving. I want you to come to see a, a, an average-looking man who has something outstanding about him, which becomes to us beautiful. See it? This is the choice that God is wanting us to make about him. So now again, I'm asking you this question about Ruth. Really, I hope you're right with me here. Who is God choosing to reveal himself as? What kind of God, what kind of person in this story? Is it the majestic God, beautiful lightning, fire, glory? Or is it an old man who's just hoping that we will choose him? You see it? 
He's hoping. He hasn't used all the other weapons in his arsenal that he could have used. He's gone to the most substantive one. Nothing attractive about me except who I am. Will you make that choice? Or will you be siphoned off by Vegas? You see it? Now, if we really get a hold of that right there, I said, are you looking forward to seeing God face to face? And everybody's hand went right up, and then we thought about it, and people laughed and put their hand down. But here's what God is trying to do. Yes, I am glory, and yes, I am lightning, and yes, I am all these things, and yes, I am all these things, but I want you to know who I really am. And that person who's not forcing you to choose me, I'm the person who's hoping that you'll choose me. And so when we see him and we look into his eyes, we do not see judgment. We see an old man who says, you are showing me a kindness. You are showing me this more substantive love. You see it? Now that's beautiful, isn't it? And that right there ought to set you free. Except for one problem. I'm not Ruth because if God is Boaz, then we got to be Ruth. And here's Ruth, outstanding moral character and good every choice. And here's me. <laughs> you know, the polar opposite, not quite, thank God. You know, like maybe 10%, you know. Right? But you know, I'm not Ruth. I am not Ruth. Every person in here knows exactly what I'm saying when you hear me say that. And every person in here, when you hear me say that, and he bears witness with it at all, is buying a lie from the pit of hell. You are not understanding that God is not the one who looks on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Here is the truth about every single person who is sitting here in this place. He sees you totally different than you see yourself. When we look in the mirror, what we see is, as Paul says, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and don't do the things that I do? Oh my God, what wretched man that I am. Horrible, horrible, horrible. He looks at himself in the mirror. But then here's the revelation that Paul has. The mirror is not what God uses to see us. He pierces through the sin and the problems to the new creature that he has made. Because Paul says right there, uh, so now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. It's not me anymore. It's sin living in me. See that? There's a new me. But John says it this way. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. What does God see when he looks at us? The you. That did What? that made a choice to be with him. The same choice that Ruth made. That's the choice. And to him, it is beautiful. <laughs> to him, you, the one that he has made, is beautiful. Is there a bunch of crud? Yeah, what does he see? Jesus' blood. <laughs> Covering all of that. Do you see it? This is why when he says, don't worry about a thing, I'll do what's necessary. Do you want to be with me? Don't worry about a thing. 
I'll take care of it all. I will make you new. I will die for you and cover and kill all the old. And the thing that will be left is this new nature, this new truth, this new you that is precious, that is Ruth and then some. And this is who God sees. 